Please stand as you're able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from the heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God. may be seated. David, thank you for reading our lesson this morning. Uh, David is one of our Stephen ministers that Adam was referring to, and we've had the chance to see the video this morning. We're so grateful to our 30 active Stephen ministers, and we're praying for those who are about to be activated, who are being trained now, and we're so grateful for the Spirit of God that we sense within them. Adam, thank you for your prayer. Mason, what a blessing you and the praise team are to us, and we're grateful to all of you. And to what I called the few, the brave, and the proud this morning. On a rainy uh, Sunday morning, you are here, and it is a blessing to be with you. And as Adam has mentioned, also with those of you who are tuning in with us online as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. We're in week seven at this point of an 11-week series on the Acts of the Holy Spirit that we're choosing to think around the theme of empowered And if you've been with us since August the 8th, you know that we've been talking about the power of Christ within us, that is the Holy Spirit, that empowers us, first of all, we said, to stick together. Secondly, the power to witness, to bear witness to our faith. Thirdly, we talked about the power of the Spirit 
to enable us to heal and restore. And then we talked about the power of the Spirit that enables us to endure opposition. And then we talked about the power of the Spirit that helps us to adapt to a shifting culture. And then last week, we talked about the power of the Spirit to help us face persecution. I want to think with you for just a few minutes this morning from Acts 9 about the power that God gives us to change, to really change from within. Acts chapter 9, David, that you read for us, is actually a conversion story. Luke mentions in his material, not only in his gospel, but also in the sequel, the book of Acts, of two roads that lead to change. Two roads that lead to conversion. One of them is in Luke 24. That's the Emmaus road. That's a gradual, step-by-step, successive road. That means it doesn't happen all at once or overnight. It's very gradual. That's a conversion story. But the other conversion story is what we've read today. It's the Damascus road, which is a two-by-four in the head which is sudden, abrupt, or or a dramatic, a 180 change in our lives. And both of those roads, according to Luke, lead to change, conversion. Flannery O'Connor, speaking of the Apostle Paul, said this, I reckon the Lord knew that the only way to make a Christian out of this one was to knock him off his high horse. And so it is. Apparently, this conversion is so important in the book of Acts that it's highlighted not once, not twice, but three times. So we read Luke's account in Acts 9, but then in Acts 22 and Acts 26, you actually hear Paul's account of his own conversion story. And indeed, in his letters, he mentions what we've read today four different times in his epistles. He has been called the most effective missionary of the early church. He has been called the first theologian of the church. He has been referred to as the second founder of the church. And indeed, more than one-fourth of the New Testament canon is attributed to the Apostle Paul. His story is one of radical change. Of course, you know that his name in the Aramaic, in the Hebrew language, is Saul. He was named for the first king of Israel. Prior to David and Solomon, the first king, Saul, he's named for the king of Israel. He's a Hellenistic Jew, which means he is ethnically Jewish, but culturally, he's Greek. He speaks Greek. Born and raised in Tarsus, which was a leading city in Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey. His father was an ex-slave who purchased his freedom, and so Paul was born a Roman citizen, and he was a devout Jew. He was raised, like many of us, in the church, or in his day, we would say the synagogue, and after his confirmation that we would call bar mitzvah, He was sent by his parents to a boarding school in Jerusalem where he was tutored by a rabbi named Gamaliel. We talked about two weeks ago, Gamaliel, a Pharisee who was also a card-carrying member of the Sanhedrin. 
Saul was a gifted student. He was summa cum laude. He was voted most likely to become a rabbi by his senior class. And as a young adult, we know from last week that he was so zealous about the Mosaic law that he actually endorsed the execution of a young Messianic Jew named Stephen. In fact, the very first mention of Paul or or Saul by name happens in Acts 7, verse 58. Here it is. And then they dragged Stephen out of the city and pelted him with stones, and the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the first mention. Now, the gesture of someone guarding the coats identifies Saul as the ringleader in this scene. In fact, a few verses later, chapter 8, verse 3, tells us, Luke says that at this point, Saul began ravaging the church, going house to house, bringing men and women to confront them for their heresy, he called it. And consequently, because of the death of Stephen, many of the disciples are now leaving Jerusalem. They're fleeing Jerusalem. They're scattering across the world, which ironically serves to fulfill the mission of Jesus. You remember Jesus' last words, his commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He said this, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's now happening, not in spite of persecution, but because of it. It was Tertullian, the second century church father from Carthage, who said, and he rightly said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Kingsley Manuel, a Nigerian Christian who has suffered great persecution for his faith, said, and I quote, persecution for Christians is not a possibility, it's a promise. It's not a maybe, it's a surely. Following Jesus can mean finding the trouble you've been looking for. And so it is that because of persecution, the gospel now begins to spread. And this is where our text begins. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if any be found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them back bound to Jerusalem. I want you to notice I've italicized the word breathing threats and murder. That's very telling. The word for breathing or breath and spirit in the Greek language, it's the same. The word is pneuma. It's our word for pneumonia. It's a respiratory. It is the breath and wind and spirit of a person. So that when you see what Luke says, breathing threats and murder, what that means is Paul's soul, Paul's spirit is malicious. Paul's spirit is toxic. It's it's venomous toward the people belonging to the way. And that's the term that was used for those who followed Jesus, people who belong to the way, because Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth and the life. Paul saw Christians as a genuine threat to his own faith, to Judaism. Because he was a zealous Pharisee, he perceived that these people belonging to the way seemed to be teaching to others that the way of salvation comes apart from the law. And Paul could not stand for it. It's also interesting, notice, that the high priest doesn't come and ask Paul to do this. Paul goes to the high priest and asks for warrant. He asks for papers so that he could extradite these heretics. And the other thing you notice is it's not just in Judea. It's not just around Jerusalem. He's willing to go all the way to Syria to bring these people bound in chains back to Jerusalem to face the music. He was willing to go to Damascus, which was a leading city in Syria, 150 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's across the border. In other words, it's so far away, Paul, why don't you just let them go? They're not going to be any threat to you. They're going to be no danger to you. But Paul, who is toxic and venomous towards the way, is breathing fire. And so the high priest gives him authority to sort of be the hatchet man for the Sanhedrin. And the high priest gives him the backup to do the dirty work. Now, if you know your geography, your biblical geography, you know that it would take about a week or so to go from Jerusalem to Damascus. And that the road from Jerusalem to Damascus, guess guess where it goes? It goes straight through Galilee the place of Jesus' early ministry. And so as they're going, they, they probably go by Capernaum, which was headquarters for the Jewish Christian movement. That's where Peter lived. That's where Jesus bunked with Peter and his family and hired Peter's mother-in-law. They're going right by Capernaum. They're going right across the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus chose the fishermen. They're going adjacent to Bethsaida, where five of the 12 apostles came from. They're even going near Nazareth, which was his hometown. They're going nearly to Caesarea Philippi, where Peter was the first to say, you're the Messiah. And then they climb Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was the place where Jesus, in a prayer retreat, Elijah and Moses appeared with Jesus, and Peter wanted to build a church there. He's literally walking in the footsteps of Jesus, Paul, on his way to bring captive the Christians back to Jerusalem. This is where the story gets interesting. As Paul and the police are descending Mount Hermon, something happens. There's a light that flashes. There's a, a voice that sounds that literally knocks Saul to the ground. That's interesting to me that many have tried to explain what happened in natural terms. In fact, you may read from time to time that it might have been a drop in altitude that was so drastic that the cool mountain air from Mount Hermon combined with the warm, humid air of Damascus causing a pop-up storm. There are others who might say it was a sunstroke that got Paul, and I think it was, but it was S-O-N, not S-U-N. 
There are others who say it may have been an epileptic seizure. Perhaps Paul had epilepsy. But Charles Spurgeon, the great British evangelist, said, if it was an epileptic fit, would to God that all the world should have epilepsy. It's interesting, isn't it, how we try to explain away the mystery of God. How we try to explain away the the activity of the divine one. Luke says it was none of that. Luke says that Paul had a close encounter with the divine kind. That there was a flash and then a voice. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Apparently, Jesus feels such solidarity with his followers that when they are mistreated, it's him who is being mistreated. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Answers Paul, I'm Jesus, the very one you're persecuting. Now, as you can imagine, Paul at this point was completely spooked. And then comes an instruction in the voice, get up and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. And his companions help him up He's completely helpless at this point. The persecutor of the church who's come to do in the Christians is completely helpless. He's blind as a bat. He can't see. He can't eat. He can't drink for three days. And isn't it true that sometimes in our epiphanies with God, God disables our plans before he enables our plans? He removes Paul's eyesight, which means he takes away his initial vision before he gives him a revision. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, every story of conversion is a story of blessed defeat. And Paul is completely defeated in purpose. Meanwhile, There's a disciple in town in Damascus, a believer in Christ named Ananias, who also has a vision and hears a voice. Ananias, get up, go to the street, call straight to the house of a man named Judas, and there you'll find a man from Tarsus named Saul, and I want you to lay hands on him so that he can regain his sight. And Ananias, knowing some of the exploits of Saul, said, Say what? Come again? I love his response, and this is the Revised Chapel version. He says, Lord, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but this guy's out for blood. I don't know if you have read the Damascus Gazette today, but this guy means business. This guy's playing for keeps. Is there anyone else that you might want me to visit today? You ever do that with God? I'm sure you don't, but I do. Sometimes, particularly when God calls me to do something especially difficult that I don't really want to do, I spend a fair amount of time explaining to God why it cannot be done and why somebody else needs to do it. Some of you may remember the story of four friends, one named everybody, one somebody, one anybody, and one nobody. Here's the story. There was an important mission to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. 
Somebody got angry because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. And it ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could. That's the story of the church. Ananias was the somebody who did what nobody wanted to do. He reached out to Saul at a man's house named Judas. And notice how he addresses him. Brother, he calls the enemy of the church, brother. (laughs) Ananias at this point, I think, is embodying the church. He reaches out to an enemy of the church who's had a vision, gives confirmation and clarity to Saul's call and conversion. And he conveys to Saul what God had made known to Ananias. And this was it. Go and tell Saul he's a vessel, he's an instrument that God has chosen to bring his name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. And I myself, says the Lord, will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias did it. The persecutor of the church is going to become the persecuted. No longer will Saul be the one who causes suffering. He's going to be the one who shares suffering. What was Ananias doing? He was articulating the vision. He was authorizing and empowering Paul for a new mission. That's interesting. You go back to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The high priest has the title, but Ananias has the spirit. And he lays his hands on Saul. This is a way of authorizing. He's deputizing Paul. He's empowering for ministry. And the scales fall from his eyes, and his sight is restored And listen to this, and he baptizes him and feeds him so that he regains his strength. That's the sacraments. He baptizes him and then serves him the supper so that he might regain his strength. It was Dr. Billy Graham who said, in every true conversion, the will of man comes into line with the will of God The very thing we resist is what God overrules. Now, when I read this story, I think, well, you know, Lord, not everybody can be a Paul, (laughs) but anybody can be an Ananias. Anybody can be a source or a witness that helps someone realign their lives with the will of God. And think about it, without an Ananias, you would have never heard of Paul. But Ananias too had a vision, and he comes to Paul and authorizes and empowers him and articulates the ministry for his life. And Paul does it. Now at this point in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is really moving now. 
Because in Acts 8, you've got Philip preaching over in Samaria. Nobody wanted to do that either. You've got an Ethiopian eunuch who would have been outlawed from the temple who's now been baptized by Philip and is now taking the gospel to Africa. And you've got a former persecutor of the church who's now preaching the gospel in Syria. What next? How about a Roman centurion with blood on his hands who's baptized by Peter and it happens in chapter 10. What's happening? The commission is being fulfilled in the most unusual and unlikely of places. And here's the thing that gets me more than anything else about Paul's conversion. Paul was never looking for Jesus. But Jesus was looking for Paul. Paul didn't find Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus found Paul on the road to Damascus. And what that means is, whether you're looking for him or not, he's looking for you. And when he encounters you, it is a blessed defeat. And all of a sudden, I become blind to my will and my whole life is realigned to the will of God and it changes everything. I close with this. Some of you know the name Evelyn Underhill. Evelyn Underhill, marvelous writer in the first half of the 20th century. She was an Anglo-Catholic and so in her studies, in her walk with God, she was a bit of a mystic in certain ways. She certainly believed in the Holy Spirit. And she fell in love with some of the saints of the church. And she began to write about them, their experiences in a book called The Spiritual Life. It's still worth reading. In the book, Miss Underhill says it like this. St. Paul did not want to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He wanted to be a clever and appreciated young Jewish scholar. St. Augustine, St. Ambrose did not want to be overworked and worried bishops. Nothing would have been farther from their intention. St. Cuthbert of England wanted the solitude and freedom of his retreat on the Farne Islands on the coast of England, but he did not often get there. St. Francis Xavier's preference was for an ordered life close to his beloved master, St. Ignatius. And yet at a few hours' notice, he was sent out to, the apostle, to be an apostle to the Indies and he never returned to Europe again. Henry Martin, the fragile and exquisite scholar, was compelled to sacrifice the intellectual life to which he was perfectly fitted for the missionary life to which he felt he was decisively called. He was 31 when he died. And yet in all of these stories, we recognize not the frustration of the saints, but the highest of all kinds of fulfillment. Things like this, she writes, and they're constantly happening, gra gradually convince us that the overruling reality of life is the will and choice of the Holy Spirit 
acting not in some kind of mechanical way, but in a living, personal way. And that the spiritual life does not consist in mere spiritual improvement or assiduous attention to one's own soul, but consists of a free and unconditional response to the Spirit's presence, commission, and call, whatever the cost may be. E. Stanley Jones said it like this, in conversion, in spiritual change, you are not attached primarily to an order, to an institution, to a movement, to a denomination, or to a doctrine. You are attached primarily to a person, to the person of Jesus Christ. And it is he that realigns our will according to his will in a way that extends God's saving grace in the most unexpected ways to the most unexpected people like us. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.